Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I'm back with part two of my conversation with Milton Alimadi. Again, Milton is the publisher of the Black Star News. He's also the author of Hearts of Darkness, which is about the history of Western media demonization of Africa. He's an adjunct professor of African history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice here in New York City. And he can be heard every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on WBAI 99.5 FM radio and WBAI.org as the host of the Black Star News. So let's get right back into my conversation with Milton. My master's thesis, that thesis paper won one of the top journalism awards at Columbia, and then a publication, a magazine called Columbia Journalism Review, which is very respected in journalism, but of which I have utterly zero respect now, and I'll tell you why. He invited me to submit my article, my thesis for publication. So I did. And then I saw the next issue of the journalism review without my article. I saw a second issue. And then I realized, wait, I'm about to graduate. I would like for it to be published while I'm still here. So, you know, my peers can see it as well. So then I contact the editor. His name was Michael Hoyt. Decades later, you can't forget something like this. (laughs) (laughs) So I call him. I say, well, what's happening with my article? I know it's not been published yet. And then is when he now tells me that, oh, a decision has been made not to publish it. And I say, uh, why? When you invited me to submit it. Sure. He said, well, there was some thought that some of these things happened a long time ago. (laughs) So I said, okay, so you're going to write history without going into history? I don't understand what you're saying. I said, okay. He said, well, two editors supported publishing, two editors opposed and the top editor, the executive editor, cast the final decision not to publish. I said, fine. So I want my paper back. And he says, uh, why do you want it back? And I thought this man must be crazy. He's asking me why I want my paper back. This was over the phone. Sure. So I said, I want it back because it's my paper. And then he told me something very curious. He said, because it's not the same as what you gave us. I said, that's precisely why I want it back. And, ah, he, and, so and yeah. edited it. They, yes, and even yes. the edited version they, was not. Even, even the edited version was not published. So I had called from the journalism building because the magazine's office is actually on the top floor mm-hmm. of the journalism building at Columbia. Mm-hmm. So I go straight up and I run straight into his office and he's behind a pile of papers. And I see him like pushing something underneath the pile. And he's like shocked when he sees me walking in. I don't think he thought... I'd been calling him from the building. Mm-hmm. So when I said, when I've said I want my paper later, he thought maybe maybe the next day, or what have you. Mm-hmm. So now I'm there. You know, now no time for niceties. I said, I'm here for my paper. So he starts going to different locations looking for this paper. And then he comes right back to the same spot where I, I'd he seen him shuffling. Uh-huh. And he pulls the paper from beneath the pile. And I'm shaking my head, wondering what is going on here? What did they do? hands it to me, and I walk out, and I can't even wait to get out of his office, Mm -hmm. and I'm already reading it. And of course, now, I'm again, I can't give you verbatim. I'm paraphrasing. But in the beginning of the paper, which was in galley form already, ready for publication, back in the days they put it in galley form, Mm -hmm. that the start said, this paper 
is in no way an indictment of the New York Times. Because after all, the New York Times has published many insightful articles about Africa in the past. This is only to show how every major media institution can go astray. <laughs> wow. I couldn't believe I said so. They're terrified of the yes, New York Times. And I'm thinking, okay, it's, you know, they probably may be beneficiaries from the sure. New York Times Foundation and all that. So I said, you know what, I'll do you a favor. So I sent it to the publisher of the New York Times, and I described exactly what had happened with Columbia Journal Review. And I said, I don't think it's fair for a publication that purports to be the arbiter of, quote unquote, objective journalism to censor themselves because they're afraid of you. Mm-hmm. And this is the evidence why they're afraid of you. And so I'm sending it to you. Mm-hmm. I feel you should know this because it's undermined the whole nonsense about journalism, objectivity and all sure. that. I now know much, much better. And they wrote back to me, the managing editor at the time, Joseph Lederville, wrote back to me and acknowledged that, yes, you've discovered very ugly episodes, you know, very crude episodes from our history. And I have to acknowledge that. I would also like to indicate that many of us have been working to change that, including myself. And in fact, you know, I accept in his case, because he was one of those whose letter I also found in the Times archives when he was he had been sent as a correspondent to South Africa. And he was complaining how the editors here diluted some of his articles about apartheid to make the apartheid system not look as bad as it actually was. Mm. So coming from him, I respected that. Mm-hmm. So he wrote me to that. But I made another offer, which I feel they should have accepted, and which I think, given now in the post-George Floyd era, that they're going to be compelled to accept. Mm-hmm. And my offer was this. Why don't you let me write an op-ed in the New York Times? so that your readers would know about your history. Sure. And if indeed, and how, how indeed, if you're saying you've evolved and you continue to evolve. Right. But, but they never responded of to- Of course, yeah. To, to no, one, no one wants to be checked. Point. They don't want to check themselves. No one to check. And then this was the other challenge, getting anybody else to publish that paper. I could not get it published anywhere. Right. Not, not even the Village Voice would publish it. The best rejection I got came from the New Yorker magazine, actually. The editor wrote me that, you know, there was a type letter saying, oh, this is not a good fit for us, et cetera, et cetera. But then (laughs) there was a handwritten note on that rejection saying, this is very good. Why don't you forward it to Mother Jones magazine? (laughs) 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 So then I was a bit confused, but then I realized, oh, wait a minute. The copy of the rejection letter that's kept in the folder at the New Yorker would not have the handwritten note encouraging me to send it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I I went ahead and took his advice. I sent it to Mother Jones magazine and it was rejected. Okay. <laughs> that is when I decided, you know what? Let me not engage in, in this exercise anymore. Yeah. And I will not allow them to shut the door on this, I think, a significant revelation. Sure. You know? And that is how I ended up self-publishing the book, The Hearts of Darkness, How White Writers Created the Racist Image of Africa. And I've been able through the years to sell 5,000 copies uh, self-published. But now I would like to announce that I do have, in fact, a publisher. I just signed a contract. Finally, after all these... Ooh, nice. That case, I signed a contract last month. And the title of the book is going to be different. I think it's going to be something like Manufacturing Hate. Ah, okay. How Africa was demonized in uh, Western media, something like that. So the book should be coming out 
uh, with this new title sometime this year, 2021. And I think the New York Times, once again, will have an opportunity to address that part of their history that they wish that people should not know about. In fact, a few weeks ago, there was a publication, I forget the name of the publication, fortunately, somewhere in the Midwest, I believe, it's a a major publication, a newspaper that has owned up to its racist coverage in the past Mm. and has been publishing a series of articles about their historical racist depiction Mm -hmm. of African-Americans and owning up to that. And when I read that, I imagined, and I know that probably some editors at the New York Times also read that, and they're familiar with my work, because every time another, I printed a new batch of my self-published book, mm-hmm. I made sure I would send copies <laughs> to, to the publisher of the New York Times yeah. and to the editors, and they've acknowledged receiving the books, and even on one case, I made some remarks about the quality of the content of the book. Sure, sure, sure. Wow, I remember going to your book launch. In the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm so excited for you. Congratulations. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So, but in the interim, the book is available or should we tell our listeners to hold tight and wait for the new release? They should, they should hold tight. The one that is available is the original ver- version. Mm-hmm. I think people are hawking it on Amazon. Yes. At, one time, at one time, I saw a ridiculous price of like, I think, $600. I think it's come down to maybe like 150 now. <laughs> uh, and, and, and there are some copies for 75 I think. Oh, but, wow. But it was $10 when I printed it. Yeah, so I, I remember. Any, I have a $10 I, copy. <laughs> no, I don't want anybody to spend. The new one, I think, is going to be, I think the publisher told me it would be 25 I think. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. And, you know, I'm, I see good things for this, particularly as we're talking about education and journalism. You know, it's this is something that we, you know, we hope curriculums begin to really change and acknowledge and show how the institution, I think people have this idea like, oh, it's institutional, but we really need to see how apparently for people to believe that this actually happens. So um, thank you for that work. Thank you for that. Thank you. I decided, and I say, say this for others also, that are facing similar, what they may see as a predicament or challenge, you know, don't let anybody discourage you. Because right. sooner or later, the history is going to catch up uh, with mm-hmm. the facts. And I think I think the history has done a lot of catching up in this case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. By force. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By force in, in some cases. Yeah. So Milton, speaking of speaking, and I wanted to ask you, I'll ask you this global speak question, but I also wanted to ask, how life growing up in East Africa was, like in Tanzania, like going from Uganda to Tanzania. Before we get into that, let me ask you my global speak question. So this is a we want to hear what you hear question. So I asked my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as global speak. So you live in the Bronx. It could be something from the Bronx. Or, you know, I always give a little bit of flexibility because it could be something that's more near and dear to you in your your native tongue. So tell us, what's your local speak? When many doors close, many more are open. Oh, okay. And for people that are familiar, of course, that comes from the great legendary Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bob Marley is my resident poet. Right. And, and, and Fela, Fela as well. Those are, okay. my, those are my musical poets. <laughs> okay, sure. That that's, speaks for itself. And I think it's very apropos for the last conversation we were having. Okay, so moving into the idea of 
what life was like in growing up in Uganda and Tanzania. Tell us, give us a little bit of texture on that, because I always wonder what, you know, you had this exposure to America and the U.S., and but you were very much in, in an African city. Right. It's interesting, and I'm glad you asked that question. My family went back to Uganda for the first time after Idi Amin seized power, after my father had been a diplomat here in the U.S., and I'm glad we had this conversation by your world being informed by the TV that you watch, the, the broadcast content. Mm-hmm. So I was maybe nine years old around that time. So I would ask myself when I heard the, the grown-ups talking about the coup, the takeover of the government, and they would always like hush the conversation when we got near. And I was thinking to myself, you know, why could Superman come and take out this evil man, Idi Amin, you know? <laughs> so that was my mm-hmm. conception of the world at that time. Yeah. A very typical Americanized kid, right? Mm-hmm. And then we go to Uganda and we go to Kampala, the city. We stay there for a little while. And then we go to my hometown, which is called Gulu. It's about 300 miles away from Kampala. And then we have a house in the town itself. And then we start visiting my mother's relatives in the villages. And so we would ask a very typical American question, you know, like, you know, mom, why don't they wear shoes? You know, mom, why why don't they wash their hands? You know, oh, mom, we're not going to play with these kids, you know. And we had this American impression of Africa and Africa, you know, and that was our first free contact. And we would always like hang around our mother. We didn't want to play with, you know, those kids, right? Mm-hmm. And as you know, young people, once they start interacting, a few months later, we were playing bare feet as well. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> we ended up giving away all our clothes yeah. to these kids. Mm-hmm. It was so bad that my mother actually had to go. And get them back. <laughs> We had nothing left to wear. (laughs) And we were enrolled in a primary school in the town Mm -hmm. and we rejected that. We refused. We didn't want to be driven, you know, with the car to school. We wanted to go to the village school where every kid came, Mm -hmm. you know. Nobody had on shoes. It was a very village type school, but the education was excellent. The teachers were, and that's the amazing thing. The education system was actually tremendous. Yeah. So whether you were in this, the city, there would be some variation, of course, but there was still a high standard. Sure. But of course, it took a lot of resistance by our parents to actually succumb to our constant pestering that we'd be allowed to go to mm-hmm. a rural world, mm-hmm. you know, but ultimately that became our world. And so it was very hard for us to part from that rural village setting, which we had become accustomed to. Our cousins and other relatives used to take us to hunt, you know, hunt in the mm-hmm. fishing and hunting birds and making our own catapults and, you know, just living the village life, which we had become to enjoy. Because as I said, once kids start interacting with each other, all the stereotypes, you know, dissipate because they're actually now learning and experiencing. And that is very important. I say all this because I know it has impact. I yeah. know it's still, it's still having impact, as you can imagine, in distorting the African imagination mm-hmm. in the Western mind. Mm-hmm. So we were very uh, sad to leave that world when my family had to flee 
from Uganda to go into exile in Tanzania. And then in Tanzania, we lived in the city, the capital city of Dar es Salaam, Mm -hmm. Tanzania. At that time, the president was the late Julius Nyerere, Mm -hmm. who was an African leader and a socialist. So in Tanzania, that is when I started getting exposed at that young, early age, as a teenager, to socialist teachings Mm -hmm. and uh, and African teachings and develop even much more appreciation of Africa on an intellectual level. Sure. And started started reading uh, Julian Nyerere himself, started reading uh, Kwame Nkrumah, Steve Biko, and all these other Pan-Africans. So that was my political education and uplift in consciousness, I would say, uh, really occurred in Tanzania. Mm. And then, of course, I also developed a very interest, a deep interest in, as I said, in, in film, in cinema. Mm-hmm. I read a lot. I read a lot of books, but I also used to go to movies all the time. They're not the best type qualities, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, some were martial arts, kung fu movies. Yes. You know, those are the content that you used to get. Yeah, and, I remember. And, but I just like to study visual representation, right? Mm-hmm. The cinematic presentation. I even went to many Indian films because, you know, they have a large Indian uh, Tanzanian population. Right. So there are a lot of, in fact, most of the movie houses showed Indian film. So I would go there. And unfortunately, there would be no subtitles. So you have to follow oh, from the action. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you something very funny that I remember. That, you know, Africans, Tanzanians would also be, you know, and this is the annoying thing too, but it wasn't annoying for me because I didn't understand what was going on anyway. So they would be talking out loud, explaining what was being said. So you would have a Tanzanian speaking Swahili, explaining what was being said in the Indian movie. And then you would have another Tanzanian from another end of the theater shouting and opposing what that (laughs) translation said. (laughs) This is what they meant. Uh, and, of course, and then, of course, the Indians who actually understood yeah. and would appreciate some silence. Which was like, I watched the movie in peace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. We're so creative. Yeah. And what was my other experience? My other experience in Tanzania was I, I felt like I developed a deep love for soccer. You know, we call it football, of course. Sure. Yeah. So I attend a lot of, uh, you know, soccer games. And I started actually working out as a teenager because I wanted to become a better football slash soccer player. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I used to uh, force my younger siblings to work out as well. And in recent years, they've told me that, you know what, man, we really used to hate you a lot as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. As they said, thank you. Yeah. So that was, I think that captures my life in time. I used to read a lot. And, you know, I remember my mother used to always complain, said, you know, that's, and she, she was very concerned, actually. She said, you know, no ordinary kid should be this serious, you know. Mm. I would always be reading. I would always be, you know, I would discipline my younger siblings. And I'm 12 at that time, right? Or 13. Yeah. And my siblings are maybe two years. Are you the eldest? Yes. Okay. I'm the eldest. Yes. I'm the eldest from my mother. Okay. I had uh, brothers and sisters as well. So what I would do sometimes, I would have like, uh, and let's say my mother was away. Mm-hmm. I would lock, you know, the door and I would sit by the door making nobody can leave. And I would designate like a two hour period only for reading. (laughs) 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 So my mother sat me down and said, you know, 12 year olds shouldn't be doing stuff like that. (laughs) Take it easy a little. Oh, funny. (laughs) So serious. (laughs) I must say. You know, later in life, actually, I, I did learn to relax. Sure. I think 
by the time I got to college, I think in college, I probably over-relaxed a little in right. college. Right, that's know? typically how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> you got footloose and fancy free in New York City. <laughs> All right, there you go, there you go. Yeah. But I'm happy to say my siblings now really appreciate that time. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's right. wonderful. So, Milton, speaking of life in Africa, we have a pretty interesting political situation in your homeland just this, this yeah. week. And so give our listeners a little bit of context and background and analysis, in your opinion, of what you think is going on with this presidential election that maybe really was stolen this time. You know, like that's the that's a juxtapose that we've been kind of as Africans been thinking about. So tell us your thoughts. Right. Okay. yes. In Uganda, the election which was held January the 14th. Yes, it was absolutely rigged in favor of the Combent, whom I call the dictator, mm-hmm. been running running the country for 35 years now, mm-hmm. General Yoweri Museveni. And the candidate who defeated him, and I think it will ultimately be proven to be the case, is uh, he goes popularly by his stage name, uh, Bobby Wine. Mm-hmm. His given name is Robert Kagulanyi. He's a member of parliament. And his political stock really soared in the last three years, three to four years. He's only been a member of parliament since 2017. Okay. But... The reason why he won, as will be proven, is because he represents the youth of Uganda. Mm-hmm. Uganda is perhaps one of the youngest countries in the world. And as you know, Africa is one of the youngest continents in the world. I saw one stat that said more than 60% of the population is under the age, or at least 25 and younger. Yes. In Uganda, it's about 80% of the population is under the age of 35. Yes. And so over the last uh, two years, Bobby Wine succeeded in getting millions of young people to register to vote right. for the first time. Mm-hmm. So the voting role completely transformed and changed. Exactly. So demographically alone, he had won the election before a single vote was cast. Right. See? Therein lay the dilemma for the dictator. The dictator, people believe he also lost the last two elections, perhaps even the last three, mm-hmm. to a, a candidate whose name was Kiza Besige, Dr. Kiza Besige, who was also dealt with ruthlessly and violently, mm-hmm. beaten, arrested when he was campaigning, you know, that five years ago. But Uganda's believe he also actually defeated General Museveni. But of course, the challenge is this. The election commission is handpicked by General Museveni himself without any input from any other party or any individual. So it's very, it's nearly impossible to have that same election commission announce anybody but General Museveni as the winning candidate. But in one of the elections, uh, the one, not the last one, the one before that, the election commission was actually, actually originally voted to overrule the outcome of the election. Not the election commission, the Supreme Court of Uganda uh, voted four to three or three to two, but some configuration to annul the results of election that had been announced by the election commission. But it was later learned that the judges of the the Supreme Court, they got a call uh, from the military that they needed to do the right thing. So they reversed their own ruling (laughs) and affirmed those fraudulent election results. In Uganda, we have a similar situation right now. But what Bobby Wine's supporters were able to do, they developed an app 
Right. Called You Vote. Yep. And what that app allowed their polling agents to do was to take an image of the declaration form, which has the total votes of all the candidates mm -hmm. and which had been signed by each of the candidates' representatives yes. at the polling stations, right? And that is the reason why the dictator decided to shut down the internet. The internet has been shut down in Uganda since last Tuesday, mm -hmm. two days before the election. And that is why they've had a challenge in transmitting the records from the declaration forms to you vote. They had only managed to capture 400 polling stations out of a total of more than 34,000 or so polling stations. And they had managed to start getting a national trend, the returns that had come from all parts of the country. And in their returns, Bobby Wine had a consistent lead ranging from 70 to 20%, 70% for Bobby Wine, mm -hmm. 20% for Museveni and the rest to other candidates. <laughs> and now, as we speak right now, this is how tragic it is. The military going in search of all those polling agents. Yes. And there have now been reports that some have, in fact, already been killed. And what they're trying to do is to, of course, capture them and get a hold of those cell phones with information. And I think after they feel that they've done enough of this Terrorizing. Uh, elimination, then perhaps they will turn the, the internet back on in Uganda. But it's almost comical. There was a article in the Ugandan called the Daily Monitor, which is the leading independent newspaper mm -hmm. on Saturday, early Saturday, late, late Friday here in the United States, early Saturday in Uganda. Published an article and it said, and I knew this article was making a big disclosure and I was wondering whether the election commission was sending out a deliberate signal to the world that perhaps there are people on the election commission that are trying to speak <laughs> to the public you know, without jeopardizing their lives. Sure. And the article said, based on all the previous returns that had been aggregated up to that time, General Museveni had been awarded 4.7 million votes by the election commission. And then an additional batch of votes came in and they were tallied each candidate apportioned their share of the new votes. So a new aggregate came out. And in the new aggregate, General Museveni's totals had declined by 129,000 votes. <laughs> Not even stayed the same, but had declined. As the reporter pointed out, you know, would appear perplexing if indeed the numbers right. are accurate, have been being fed are accurate numbers. So I tweeted that article and I said, this is another evidence that what the Election Commission has been putting out as true data from the declaration forms are not actually the true numbers. Sure. And one clear indication. Oh, right. Because they're forgery. I went back to check that Monitor article a few hours later. Gone. Gone, eliminated, deleted from the website. <laughs> so I had to tweet again that the article that I mentioned earlier and tweeted about is no longer there. And here's the link and you can go see for yourself. <laughs> wow. So we When you click on it now, you says, you know, we're sorry, <laughs> the item you're searching for. <laughs> It's preposterous, really. But here's the challenge now. Yes. Museveni has a special, very perverted relationship with the West, particularly the United States. Somalia has been a pretty much almost a collapsed state for more than two decades now. In the last few years, a movement, a militia called Al-Shabaab, had grown and had challenged the government in the capital, Mogadishu, which is supported by the West and the United States. So what Museveni did was to volunteer 
a Ugandan intervention force. And that army is uh, deployed about eight to 10,000 soldiers, Ugandan soldiers, in Somalia. It was supposed to be an African force, but it's essentially a Ugandan force. So every time the United States raises the issues of human rights in Uganda, and anybody can go and check this, Museveni says, oh, I might consider withdrawing my forces from Somalia. And the U.S. is very concerned because the U.S. believes al-Shabaab is very closely linked to al-Qaeda. Right. And obviously the U.S. would prefer to have Ugandan body bags being shipped to Uganda, which in fact is what has been happening mm. over the last 12 years or so that Museveni has had Ugandan soldiers there. Mm-hmm. So in return, Museveni gets a blank check from the United States. He can get away with human rights abuses, with rigged elections. And he's also gets, in addition to that, $1 billion in U.S. financial and military assistance every year. Right. But it seems that even the U.S. has now reached its limit with Museveni. If I'm reading carefully the statements that have been coming out of the State Department, and we're talking even from a pre-Joe Biden State Department, and we think the statements are going to get more aggressive after Biden is sworn in last week, mm-hmm. I think the U.S. can see not only that the Museveni lost this election decisively, but the U.S. can see that it's going to be not possible to have stability in Uganda right. when you have a, such a young population who actually went to the polls in very high numbers. People that had not, they'd become apathetic yes. when it came to politics, but signed up because Bobby Wine was able to register. I think the U.S. understands that they would not be able to impose or even sustain a Museveni regime for another five years in Uganda. Right. That is my reading yeah. of what is going on right now. Yeah. But right now, his house is surrounded by about 500 soldiers. I just spoke with him earlier today. Bobby Wine. Yes, him and his wife. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to come in or to go out. A helicopter flies overhead every half hour. Wow. There's a drone hovering overhead. There are 10 armored personnel carriers, armored vehicles surrounding the house. And both him and his wife say they've run out of food. They're not even allowed to come out to go grocery shopping. And his wife described how when she came out to try to get food from their garden, they have a garden on the compound. She was manhandled by male soldiers and shoved and assaulted and taken back into the house. So they're very dire conditions, actually. Oh, no. Yes. And and I, I published an earlier interview with him earlier today. And he's calling for assistance that the countries that have financed Museveni and allowed him to impose this kind of regime should tell him to back off and end that siege of his home and allow his family to be able to come out and right. to uh, get food, right. get food and get, get water. You know. Yeah, what threat are they? That is the stand-up. The threat is that if young people start mobilizing, right. it's probably going to be very difficult to stop it. Mm. And Museveni knows what happened in neighboring, now separated between South Sudan and Sudan, mm. but it used to be a directly neighboring country. But Sudan, which is nearby, when the young people came out in the streets and they chased another dictator of 30 years, yeah. Mohammed Bashir. Yes. So I, I think he has those images in his mind. And that's why he's being ruthlessly aggressive right. toward Bobby Wan. And he's a military man. So Yes, he's a military man. Right. Wow. Well, we are going to be keeping our eyes and ears peeled if we can ever get yes. full on information. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And all, all that is, you know, one of the sad things about Africa, because as you know yourself, there's so much talent in Africa. Yes. And let's say a country like Ghana, for example, it may have its own challenges, but it's nowhere comparable to the kind of issues that people are still dealing with in Uganda. Right. In Uganda, we have 
a person that's captured the state for 35 years. So it means all the talent of young Ugandans, the entrepreneurial Ugandans, yeah. professional Ugandans, cannot be used to benefit Uganda. Right. So the whole country ends up being in a comatose yes, condition. a holding pattern. The best, the best minds leave the country, or the best minds are not allowed, even the ones in the country, mm-hmm. to become a part of the system mm-hmm. because the dictator works with people only from his part of the country and its closest associates. Mm-hmm. I don't think that can be sustained anymore in Uganda. Right, right. And, you know, I think it's high time and, you know, not to be ageist or anything, but 35 years and a 76-year-old man. Yes, it's, it's, it's not right. That's not the future for Africa. We need... No, it's not. And Africa has so much to offer Africa yeah. and to offer the world. Yes. You know, yeah, we need to get way beyond that Indeed. so we can start creating the new kind of systems based on economic cooperation Mm. between and amongst larger African regions. And we have the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is supposed to become functional, but they cannot really become fully functional if you still have these kind of pockets where you have one individual disrupting the entire system. And uh, you you need to be in a relatively harmonious political and economic environment. Yeah. And enabled by Western economies. That's the key piece is that we have to Absolutely. let that elephant show up in the room because that's yeah. the key piece. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So hmm, speaking of how do we get out of that, this is my mindset hack segment. So I want to ask you, what's your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? Now, this is one that you could imagine or one that you know of. Okay. Where I would actually hack into the mind of so basically, it's how do you get your mind in a place that is different, beneficial, helps you to overcome, to persevere, to be your best you? When I take long walks. Okay, that's good. You know? Yeah. 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 I used to jog a lot more, but, you know, it takes us wear and tear on the knees and, and the ankles, you know, yeah. especially the on the, the hard pavement outside, yeah. you know. So now I mix it up a little more. You okay, know? good. But... I think it was that some of the most rewarding times, you know, in terms of, you know, I become very creative. Yeah. You know, I come back and then the first thing I do is sit down and commit some of the ideas to note. Yeah. Or if I sometimes I have to actually stop and text myself, you know. I do the same. Yeah, I do that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, walking. So, what are your some of your, your favorite walks? You said you live in the Bronx. Yeah, so I just go around uh, the uh, Bronx Zoo. I do the nice. The, Entire circumference, right? Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. And if those of you don't know, the Bronx Zoo is in one of the most green parts of the Bronx. Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah. so that's a very nice yeah. walk. Wonderful. Yeah. That's what we're of course, if I could go you know, to a beach right now in the, Hello. In the Bahamas, that would be a nice source also too. Hello, me too. I'm so, you know, I'm such a beach girl. And in 2020, I went to the beach twice. So before the pandemic, and then I came back to New York and I was like, oh, I'm going for my birthday. So on my birthday, and then once in Ghana before everything was locked down. And so I just miss it so much. And it's a different world altogether. It really, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so get those long walks in, folks. That's a wonderful mindset. Hack. <laughs> so, Milton, our time is coming to a close. But before we get to the last of my questions, mm-hmm. I want to ask not about what you do, but about who you are. So tell us, you. I know you're a huge reader, you don't watch too much television, but what are you listening to these days? 
I listen to some Congolese music. Okay. To the older school, the classics, you know, mm-hmm. like Franco, mm-hmm. who's known as Franco. Mm-hmm. I think his given name was Luambo Macchiati. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy Franco a lot. You know, he has he had like hundreds, I think, of albums. So anything Franco is good. Okay. I listen to to Fela a lot, Mm -hmm. and I listen to Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I listen to the uh, Jimi Hendrix and to and Carlos Santana because I I enjoy the guitar. Yeah, and and that's part of the reason why I actually like uh, Franco a lot too. I think that is the most. I mean, I think the Rolling Stone magazine came out with an issue that had I think was either the fifty top guitarist of all time or a hundred guitarists and Franco was not you know listed obviously because they're ignorant of course <laughs> of African music sure. and I think I wrote to them and I'll continue writing until somebody there recognizes Listens, yeah. You know, yeah Franco's guitar. So that'll be in the show notes folks you'll be able to uh, do some research on listening to uh, Franco and these other more better known artists. Yes. Uh, but those are great tips. Yeah. So Milton Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Believe in yourself even when nobody else does. Mm. If you know you're onto a good thing, and that has really carried me a lot, you know, really. Helped me even with job rejections. Mm. Back in the day when I used to go out, you know, seeking employment before I was running my own establishment, if I knew I was qualified for that example position and I was really good and I didn't get it, well, that wasn't my fault. That was somebody missing out on the opportunity to work with me because mm-hmm. you know your worth. Everybody knows their worth. Yeah. You know your possibilities, you know, and you know your level of talents and you know how much you can improve. So why would you let somebody disrupt this? And when I say that, some people carry it with them and it makes it affect them psychologically. You shouldn't allow people to do that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, once you value your worth, just keep at it. Sooner or later, the right thing will happen. Absolutely. I like that. And, you know, just I was listening to something earlier and particularly when there's a generational aspect to those who aren't believing, because I feel like, and this kind of speaks to our conversation about the difference between Bobby Wine and Museveni, is that, you know, our parents' generations, time didn't move so fast. Right. Right. You know, you could say, don't do it. You're not going to be any good at it because examples show that over 100 years, no one was good at it. But time moves so much more quickly now. So what you believe you can do, you can do it because it takes five years to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, technology changes every 10 months, you know. Mm-hmm. 10 to 12 months. So it's just a much different context. So I really appreciate you yeah. saying those words. And, I, and I'm glad you said that, actually. So you can imagine how difficult it is for Museveni to appreciate that mm-hmm. transformation. Absolutely. And how totally out of it he really is. Mm-hmm. He's not able to fully appreciate that. Yeah. That's a very good way to wrap it yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. All right, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to my editing team. It's Potatory, this group of young people based out in the Philippines. So they've just recently launched Potatory, which offers professional audio editing and mixing solutions for podcasts. So if you're looking for that professional audio touch on your podcast, just head over to their Facebook page, which 
is facebook.com slash Poditory, P-O-D-I-T-O-R-Y to know more. So I want to give them a shout out. As always, you can catch us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com on pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, Radio Public, all those places. Just look us up, subscribe, share. I just thank you for being with us and listening and growing my audience. I really appreciate it. And Milton, thank you again so much for joining thank me. You. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you. Thank you, you too. And until next time, listeners, bye for now. <laughs>